Well, good morning, Trinity Bible Church. It's exciting to be back in God's Word this morning. And as I was preparing for the text, there was an illustration, a story that you've probably heard before that this text reminded me of. I was reminded of a time when President Calvin Coolidge went to church. He had to leave his wife behind for some reason or another, and she wasn't able to come that Sunday. And when he got home, she asked for a little bit of a briefing on what the sermon was about. And he quickly said, well, sin. And she waited. But that's all he had. Uh, maybe some of you wives are thinking, like, that sounds kind of like uh, my conversations with my husband at home. Um, maybe you're a small group leader, and you know what it feels like when you're like, what was the sermon about? And you're just sitting there waiting for, like, some kind of participation. Well, she decided to help. So she, she said, well, l- let me just ask you, I mean, maybe you could tell me a little bit more about what it, what it was about. What did the preacher say about sin? And he said, well, I, I think he was against it. Well, this morning we are looking right in the face of David's sin. And if you're here and you're joining us, you're not a Christian, you haven't really read the Bible, haven't followed the story of Scripture, maybe when you read the Bible, you look at a book and you say, mainly the message of the Bible is that God is against sin, and that's it. And maybe you have read 2 Samuel 12. And when you've gotten to the end of it, you look at it and you think, okay, David sinned, he repented, and that's what the story is about. But what I want you to know this morning is this story is about far more than our sin. It's not about less than that, but it's about so much more. It's about the grace of God. It's about the beauty and glory of God coming down to his king. Now, if you're following along, let me just help you understand a little bit about the nature of sin itself. See, sin is actually a violation of God's law. And as we look at sin, it speaks of one who is guilty of breaking God's law. God's law in the Bible is considered to be both beautiful and terrifying. Maybe you've gotten the terrifying part, but you have not seen the beauty of the law of God. But as the Bible speaks of it, we are told that the the law is something that is very much beautiful and that it displays the character of our invisible, incomprehensible God who has spoken to us in understandable ways about his character. Just think about it. What other God cares about your marriage such that he says, I don't want anyone taking your wife? And it's not just that he doesn't want you to take someone else's wife. God goes on and says, I don't want you to even think about coveting after someone else's wife. I love the beauty of a relationship that is committed, and I am for that, such that for you to violate that relationship is something that I, as God, take offense at. And what about murder? God says that I have given life to humanity in such a way that they image me. So much so that if anyone takes life from another, I see that as not just a violation against a human, but a violation against myself and my own divine character that I have given to humans who bear my image. Catch this. The law is so profound and glorious that it shows us how broken we are as a people. God, when he looks down from his law, he says, we are all together guilty. Uh, There are those uh, who will someday have to give an account for killing people of other races. They're going to have to give an account for that before a just and holy God. That is a good and glorious thing. There are those who have unjustly killed police officers who one day will have to give an account for what they have done. 
There are those who have killed babies, millions and millions of babies, who one day will have to give an account to God for what he has done. And there is beauty and glory in that, but there is also a sense of terror and the utter holiness and justice of God. We see that in the fact that God's law is terrible for sinners who fall in the hands of a holy and just God. We are not innocent before God. And why is that? Because God's law is beautiful in his care for his people, but terrifying for those who are sinners. Now this morning, that's important as we come back into our series on the life of David, who is an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. But what we find here is, is that Israel in 1 Samuel was demanding a king like the nations. They said, we want a, a just judge who's going to judge for us, bringing peace to us and amongst us. And we want a mighty warrior who will go out and fight our battles for us. Well, David warned, if you give this kind of king like the nations, he is going to do nothing but take, take, take. But the people demanded it, and guess what he did? He gave them King Saul. You might have remembered the story of King Saul. He sinned against God quickly, and in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel confronted Saul with his sin. Maybe you've forgotten about that. That was some time ago. But Samuel came after Saul for his sin against God. And there, you might have also forgotten that Saul repented. And he begged that God would restore and pardon him for his sin. But Samuel said, God has rejected you. And in chapter 16, Saul had the Spirit of God for kingship removed from him. And it was placed on King David. Saul was not pardoned when he repented for his sin. God gave the Spirit of kingship to David, and David from that moment forward looked like a superhero. He was slaying giants. He was the one who went and defeated kingdoms. He grew greater and greater. He became the king of all of Israel. He led them in the worship of God. He even created music as an aspect of God's people worshiping their God. And in 2 Samuel 7, God made a special covenant with David where he said, I will never take my spirit from you like I did Saul. And I will give your offspring an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. See, David is the hope of Israel, and not just Israel, but the nations. He is the one through whom God is going to bring salvation. But in 2 Samuel 11, we find an absolute dumpster fire. We find David, who is exposed in all of his sin. He is an adulterer and a murderer, and not just of Uriah, but the men who were with him by the sword of the Ammonites. See, David falls epically, just like Adam back in the Garden of Eden. Now, we don't know how much time has passed between chapter 11 and chapter 12, but it looks like David has covered up his sin. And he's back to work like nothing has happened. He's now the, in, the unjust king who is making just judgments for others. And what we're going to see this morning, though, is that Nathan is going to confront God's Messiah over his sin. And if you're taking notes, this is the big idea that I think that we see in this text. We're going to see that God's greater Messiah is the just judge who shows grace to sinners. God's Messiah, his greater Messiah, is the just judge who shows grace to sinners. And we're going to see this in a number of ways, but can I just pray for us as we begin? Father, this morning we come before you, our great God, praising you because you are our just judge. Father, we glory in that. 
We, we need a, a king over all things who is just and good in all of his judgments. But Father, as we come before you, we also recognize that we are sinners in need of much grace. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to revel in your justice, but also to see our desperate need of your grace and glory in that as well. And so Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Amen. The first thing we see this morning in verses 1 to 6 is that David is the just judge. What an irony. He's He's presented as a just judge. You can't miss the irony of Nathan approaching King David. This epic sinner whose sins deserve death row. And yet here, Nathan brings a parable about two men, a rich man and a poor man, that centers on a sheep. Now you can imagine how a story about a sheep is going to play the, on the heartstrings of this former shepherd, and how he's going to identify with that story, and he's going to sense the injustice of it all. But as we read in verses 1 to 6, you'll remember that Nathan tells David this parable. And he says there's a a rich man who had many flocks, many sheep. And and there was a poor man who had nothing except this one little ewe lamb, which he bought and brought up eating from his plate and drinking for his cup. And he even laid in his arms like a daughter to him. Uh, interesting word for daughter. Uh, same word for Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba, used here. So David should have been on to something, but, but he's not. And you'll notice that travelers visited this rich man, and he didn't want to use one of his many sheep to feed his guest. So he took this poor man's one sheep, and he, he gave it as a, as a meal to these visitors. Now catch what David's response is. When he responds in verses 5 to 6, he hears this. And how is David going to respond? He says this. It says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. (laughs) Did you catch David's response? There are a couple of things that strike me here. One, did you catch how David immediately identified himself with the victim? The poor man. David risked his life for sheep, fighting lions and bears to protect them, to save them, to keep them safe before becoming king. And he knew this sheep, his sheep, by name. And they knew his voice. He knew this kind of intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. And David senses the injustice and his anger is kindled over this sheep. He didn't think twice about the blood of Uriah and all of it. But this poor man, this poor man, he would receive justice because he was like the poor man. Second thing striking here is how strict David was with his sentence against the rich man. This perpetrator of injustice. Did you see it? It it was fascinating. David makes an oath before Yahweh's name. This man is a son of death. He deserves to die. He is good as death in the Hebrew for what he has done. Now that might seem a little bit harsh, especially if you know the law of God. The law of God actually has a law outlined uh, in, in Exodus 22.1, if a man steals a sheep, he shall repay four sheep for a sheep. Not a human life for a sheep. 
Uh, but here we find that David quickly drops back and shows that he knows the law and he says this man is going to pay the full extent of the law for what he has done this evil thing and if David had it his way he would die see David is blind to his own sin but he's the strict judge of justice with the sins of others does that sound familiar anybody ever kind of experienced that in their own lives See, David looks so much like Israel and us, apart from a work of the Spirit in our lives revealing our own sin. There are four quick things that we know about fallen humanity that are on display here. Four quick realities about sin. First, when we read our Bibles, we tend to identify with the victims and the heroes of the story much more than the actual perpetrators. Have you ever noticed that? Like when I read a Bible story, I am associating immediately myself with the heroes. Uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, Blue Bloods. Uh, there's this detective, his name is Danny. And whenever he looks at people, he sees them through the lens of either perps or vicks. They're either perpetrators or they're victims. And it's a real clear black and white, you're either one or the other. And if you are seen as a perpetrator, man, you are not gonna be treated well. But if you were seen as a, a victim, then all of a sudden there's this warmth and grace and sort of sorrow and, and he wants to sort of identify with them and help them. And that so seems to be the way that we view ourselves always is the victim who deserves the help, the grace, and the mercy. But that's not really the message of the Bible. See, we tend to associate ourselves with David in 1 Samuel 16 who's slaying giants we want to slay our giants, but we don't associate ourselves with David, who is in 2 Samuel 12, and he is in sin and living like nobody needs to know about it or knows about it. But this text is revealing that David is a sinner. Uh, not only that, we find that sin, while blind, while we are blind to our own sins, have you ever noticed this? That we have a sniper-like precision when we are looking at the sins of others? Like maybe you've noticed this in your friendships or your marriage. Um, it is really easy for you to see the wrongs of the person that you love most, but it is really hard for you to see your own sins, and sometimes they are so helpful in revealing those. And how shocked and surprised we are when we discover that, oh, I thought it was just you that is a sinner, but I'm a sinner too? Or third, have you noticed that we tend to want harsh punishments for those who sin against us? and deep mercy when we sin against others. And sometimes that can happen in an instant. We are wanting strict justice for the person who has sinned against us, not even thinking about the way that they've sinned against God. But when we recognize ourselves as sinners, what do you want? What is your impulse? Isn't it a longing for someone to show mercy? And then fourth, the sins of others always appear larger than our own sins, right? Kind of like the, the rear view mirror in your car, working in opposite. You know, objects aren't closer than they appear, right? They're, they're bigger than in your eyes when it's other people's sins. It's bigger. Their sins are bigger than your sins, always. And the greater Messiah, King Jesus, when he came, he could have been actually speaking to you, me, or David when he speaks in Matthew 7, 1 to 3, saying, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, just hear me. This is not saying that Christians do not make judgments. In fact, he's going to go on in Matthew 18 to show how the church makes judgments and even judges those who are living in unrepentant sin. 
But what he goes on to say is this, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. Can you see David in this? And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But God still hears the blood of Uriah crying out from the ground, even as David has forgotten it. And he goes on to say, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, Jesus isn't saying not to make judgments against others. He's saying you you need to consider first your own heart before a holy and just God. Maybe you are so distracted by the sins of others that you haven't met with God in your sin. And Jesus isn't saying don't make judgments. He's saying be clear about your own heart before a holy and just judge. See, the law is first a mirror for ourselves to show us our desperate need of God's grace. That's what it's meant to do. Our desperate need for God. And catch how Nathan responds to King David the just. Did you see this? In the midst of David's profound anger and justice, Nathan says, I think you're ready to see that you're the guilty perpetrator. As soon as David says this guilty uh, perpetrator deserves to die, Nathan says what? You are the man in verse 7. You just gave a sentence for yourself see Nathan says David the just is the rich man not the poor man the guilty perpetrator in this parable in verses 7 to 12 explain David's guilt notice how it unfolds Uh, he, he first reminds David of tangible evidences of God's grace in his life in other words he doesn't jump to the guilt he says have you forgotten the goodness of God did you see that Uh, Look what he says in verses 7 to 8. He says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave to you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Think about that. God, He begins by saying, I I handed you, without use of your sword or spear, all that King Saul had and made you my king. In fact, all of his wives and his households and possessions, all of those were yours. God faithfully lavished his steadfast covenantal love on David. And don't miss this. God here begins by saying, my tangible graces in your life, David, ought to serve as a preventative against sin. Have you ever thought about that? That we need to keep particular graces of God in our lives daily before us, reminding us that there is no good thing that comes to us that has not come straight from the hand of our Creator God. Think about that. A God who is infinite cares for you. And especially for David, who is his Messiah, his spirit-anointed king over his people. Christian, doesn't Paul give us an even greater encouragement in the new covenant? Do you remember what he says in Ephesians 3.20 as we are being encouraged to pray? Who do we pray to? We pray to the God who is able to do more than we can think or imagine. No, wait a minute, that's not right. We pray to the God who can do so much more than we can think or imagine. 
He says, you, you think that your needs are too great for my hands. And he says, you don't know how big my hands are. See, Paul says God is able. He is able. God says David's blindness to his sin began long before he became blind to the immeasurable grace of God, though. It's not a bad practice to consider and count your many blessings one by one. When was the last time that you did that? Maybe the reason that you've gotten in such a rut of thinking about how little you have or how much you've lost is because you haven't thought about how fresh and good the grace of God is in your life today. See, it's not a bad practice to count your many blessings one by one and rejoice in the Lord always for very specific, tangible reasons as a wall of grace against the enticements of sin. See, David lost sight of the goodness of God and his word, the law, which elsewhere, you remember elsewhere how David is speaking about the word of God? It is sweet as honey and it is as precious as fine metals, as gold. It is valuable and sweet. I, I value it. I desire it much more than the things of this world. I don't think that was what was going on in 2 Samuel 11 when David sinned against God. He lost sight of the goodness of God. Uh, then B, did you, show that, did you see that God shows also that he has seen David's specific sins in verse 9? This is how it unfolds from God's grace to specific sins. And we don't know if David thought that God did not see his sin or that God would overlook his sin. But God saw David's sin even when David did not see God looking. And it displeased God. And God shows specific ways David broke the law that he was supposed to uphold. He, he doesn't say, I just don't like the way you're acting, David. It's not my preference. He says, you have violated the clear commands of God's word. You sinned. You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You murdered Uriah and the men who are with Uriah. And don't miss what God says about this in verse 9. God says David's sin revealed that he despised God's word. Despised. It's, it's not just that he broke it, it's that in his heart he hated it. He hated, he had a, a heart that did not love God's voice. Now, this is huge. Saul sinned against God. And God rejected him and removed his spirit from him. And here we find David really testing the covenant faithfulness that God promised him just back in 2 Samuel 7. Will David's end be the same as Saul's? And what does that mean for the rest of humanity? Well, notice in verses 10 to 12 that God lays out the punishments. And catch what he says. Look there with me in verses 10 to 12. He says this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son but catch what he says here. He says the sword will never be removed from the house of David. There's always going to be fighting. 
And that that fighting will actually be an inside job. There will be someone who will be raised up from within who will bring evil against David. And his house, and just as David took the wife of this poor man, in exchange, God says, this one from your house will take all of the wives that are under your roof. See, David may have forgotten the blood of Uriah, but God heard it crying from the ground for justice, just like the blood of Abel back in Genesis 4. This is really the bait and switch of sin, isn't it? You know, David is thinking, I have everything in the world, but not that, and that's the thing that I want. And it's sin, and yet he says, but I've got to have it. And Satan says, you can have it, and you know what? It's the one thing that you don't have, that if you had, you're going to have joy forever. And he takes it, and he loses everything. And that's what Satan loves to do. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Sin promises you more joy, but it always robs you of more joy and leaves you emptier than when you began. And God saw David's secret sins, and he uncovered them in the light of day with all of the consequences. See, the rest of David's life from this sin forward is riddled with the consequences of this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And here in 12, he is exposing that. See, God is just. And even his just king must be under the justice and his rule. Don't take God's patience in dealing with sin as absence. I think that's one lesson that we learn here really quickly. God's timing is always, it is always perfect. And his justice is always pure. And it always comes. I'm just wondering, have you ever had a moment like that in your life where someone has come to you and you've discovered that you are the man? You are the woman? Maybe you sinned in business and you, you thought that you had gotten away with it and then it, it was exposed and, and you brought disrepute not just on yourself but on others? Maybe you are someone who was living in an unfaithful relationship uh, maybe you said something to your spouse that you just feel like you can't take back. And you feel like you've never been able to get under, for, out from under that, that declaration that you are the man or you are the woman. Uh, maybe you have hidden addictions that you think that God has turned a bli blind eye to that won't ever be exposed. One day, maybe today, Jesus will return. And he's going to expose our sins, both seen and unseen. In fact, we were promised as much in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, where it, Paul says that Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation before God for who he actually is. I'm just, I'm just wondering, are, are you ready for that day? See, God sees all things. He sees those sins of omission, the things that we ought to do but do not do, those sins of commission where we do things that we are told we're not to do, and even those sins here of contemplation, those sins of the heart that we meditate about, even if they never see the light of day, God sees them as clear as day. And day is coming when he is going to hold all of those to account. Are you ready to meet the just judge? David, I don't think, realized that he was about to come before the just judge. But here he is, and how does he respond? Well, catch what he does in verse 13. He repents of his sin. He repents of his sin. See, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. A few things are, are striking here, especially when you double-click on Psalm 51. 
See, Psalm 51 is beautiful that we read this morning. It's, it's actually a window into the soul of David as to what he was thinking about God in his sin in 2 Samuel 12 when he is approached by Nathan. Now notice the things that we can learn about David in his sin really quickly. First, God's word drops God's king to his knees. Now we don't know how much time elapsed between David's sin and David's confrontation where he confesses here, but David seemed to walk around like he was okay for a, a while perhaps until he was confronted with his sin in the word of God. See, David might have felt safe in his sin as he was on the throne in Zion, but God's word shatters him. I'm wondering if God has ever done this to you, exposed you, and left you feeling shattered. In fact, if you double-click on this text and you jump over to Psalm 51.3, you'll see there that David says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He wasn't thinking about it before this moment, and now it's all he can think about. And in verse 8, he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Broken by his sin, in his sin, in the consequences, in the revelation of who he is. David can't escape his God or his sins. Not only that, second, do you see that David sinned against the Lord? He says, I've sinned against you. Now, David sinned greatly against Bathsheba when he committed adultery with her. David sinned incredibly when he murdered Uriah and all of those warriors with him to cover his sin. He, he sinned greatly against others. But God's word here helps David see the ultimate issue with his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, maybe some of our problems in life are that we only see our sin before others and not before God. It's hard to repent when it's just humans that may deserve worse treatment than you're giving them, but when we see it in light of who God is, it humbles us. But David even doubles down in Psalm 51, 4. Do you remember what he says there? Not just, I sinned against the Lord. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now maybe that feels just a little bit funky to you. I mean, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the others? David sinned against them, but don't miss this. Seeing ourselves before the God who sees us helps us love those we see better. If you see yourself before the eyes of the unseen God, it will help you love those you see better. Because when you lose sight of the God who is spirit, it, you are not going to live as one who is loving as God has commanded us. See, David understands that God's word, the law defines what is right and what is wrong, not human opinion. And all sin traces back to a violation against the very character of God, who is the ultimate just judge. Now what's fascinating is in that uh, Psalm 51, 5, David says, here's the big problem that this traces me back to. It's not that I was like sinless before we hit 2 Samuel 12. No, in verse seven, 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. This is a problem of all of creation that is broken and riddled with sin. And these experiences, these particular moments of sin, trace back to a bigger brokenness that has encompassed the whole world. Yet here, we find that David is saying, I am not merely a sinner because I've sinned. 
I sinned because I'm a sinner. I inherited Adam's sin nature. And David's guilty for actual sins, and he sins because he inherited his sin nature, yet David is culpable before God. Not only that, did you notice this in these verses? That David doesn't deny, excuse, qualify, or blame others for his sins. David, it is a very short statement here. I sinned. That's it. It's not, well, I was under a lot of, like, suffering, Father. I mean, you know, unusual suffering. Everybody else has kind of an easier life than me. It wasn't, well, you know, God, um, it was really that woman that you gave me. Man, she gets me in all kind of trouble. I was super holy before I met her. It's not, is that really sin? I'm not sure you really said that. No, in this moment, he says, I'm a sinner. And he confesses, he's done. See, God's word broke, broke through his hard heart so that he sees God himself and others as clearly as ever as a sinner. Now, many focus on David's repentance here. And clearly, repentance includes confession of sins. And clearly, David is repenting. That same thing is true in Christ. We are called to repent of sin, meaning that we confess it. Uh, maybe you remember what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just both to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In other words, uh, we know that sin in the Old Testament made us filthy and guilty, but two parts. So there were washing ceremonies for the filth of sin. Sometimes, you know, the filth of sin was because, like, you actually did something wrong. Sometimes it was because, like, you were just in a broken world and it's, and it's dirty. But, but the guilt of sins is because you have actually transgressed. You've broken the law of God. And here we are promised that in Christ, when we confess our sins, he is faithful both just to forgive us of the guilt and to cleanse us of the filth. That's a promise that is true for Christians in the new covenant in Christ. It's a glorious promise. But catch this. David did not have 1 John 1, 9. You know what David had? 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. Remember what I said happened there? Saul sinned. Saul confessed. Saul repented, and God rejected his plea of pardon. So if you're David, you're coming to this sin, and you're coming before God, and you're like, how can I ever be clean again? How can I ever be forgiven? It, Saul was not forgiven. Am I done? Am I lost? I know he made that covenant in chapter 7, but how's it going to hold up under the weight of my egregious sins? I love what commentator John Woodhouse says here. You know, so many make David's repentance the main point of this text, but John Woodhouse, he says this in his commentary, we should be slow to give David credit for his response. This man, after all this time, after all the damage he has done, after showing no remorse at all, was at last shattered by the word of God. The wonder is that the word of the Lord could bring about this response in him as hard-hearted as he is. Nothing else could. See, the main point here is, isn't the power of David's repentance or the, the procedure of repentance that should be followed. No, it is the power of God's word to shatter sinners and make them new. See, Psalm 51 gets it. David wonders how God can cleanse and forgive him. And that's why I think verse 14 is the literary and theological center of this text. Fourth, God puts away David's sin in verses 14 to 23. Now, we often think of David's repentance as the meaning of this text. I think it is a meaning of this text. But here's a right response. It is a right response to expose sin. However, 
don't forget that Saul sinned, repented, and he was not pardoned. That's why David is king, but catch what God tells David. He says this in verses uh, 13 to, to 15, the second part of 13 to 15. Look at what he says. These are glorious words. He says, the Lord also he says, I have, uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by his deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now, do you remember how this text began? It was righteous, just David thundering down. That rich man must die for his sins he must pay in full for what he has done according to the full extent of your law, God. But don't miss this. Sin brings about God's terrifying justice in the midst of God's unmerited grace and mercy. See, God's word required a life for a life in Numbers 35, 16. This is lex talionis, the eye that there's an eye for an eye, a life for a life. What's fair is for David to die for his sin. And God's word required this. But justice, justice meant David needed to die for murder. Losing his wives might cover the adultery that he did with Bathsheba. But how do you account for Uriah's lost life? How do you come back from the loss of a life? How is it just? How do you bring that back and bring recompense to this? Only a life pays for a life. And it doesn't even bring you back to full. But don't miss this. The law is beautiful in that it displays the character of God. But it is also terrifying to filthy sinners before a holy God. It's terrifying for guilty sinners before a just judge. And take note here, what a beautiful word that he receives. It says that God put away David's sin. He put it away. Now that might sound like kind of a David Copperfield type magic trick. Or David Blaine, I don't know who the current guy is. You know, a magician. Like he just makes sin kind of disappear. And I think that's kind of the way that people think that God should, should act. He should just say like, oh, like you should just make this thing that I've done disappear. And maybe that works unless you're someone who has been sinned greatly against. Like the, the friend I've told you about before whose wife watched her family murdered before her. You think it makes her feel better to know that God just made that sin disappear, that justice won't be done? Absolutely not. And that's just a small picture of what it is that we have robbed of God in his creation, which is his, and a human image bearer of God. That's not what's happening. I don't think that's the picture of forgiveness that the Hebrew word for put away envisions here. Uh, a number of scholars have noted that this word in Samuel often means to transfer from one to another. So when God says you shall not die as the law demands, God is not saying that like the penalty's gone, like everybody's good, we'll just pretend this didn't happen. No, God says I have transferred your guilt to another that you may live. See, David hints at this understanding in Psalm 51.7. You'll remember that he says there, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What? Why is David bringing up hyssop here? Well, hyssop is Passover language. It was the language of the hyssop that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, 
God brought curses upon them to deliver them out of slavery. And if they would take the blood of the lamb and they would wipe it with hyssop over the door frame, then anybody, any firstborn child that was in that door would live. But anyone that did not have the blood covering them would die. That's what happens in Exodus 12, 22. This is Passover sacrificial language. But where is the substitute? Well, it's in verse 14. The child who is born to you shall die. It's terrifying. And that's why David mourns and fasts for seven days. God, we are told, struck the sun with sickness like he struck his enemies and David's enemies before. But here he strikes this sun that David might live. And then you read verses 16 to 23. This child dies. Now, if you're like me, this is where you're like Ivan, right? From Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov. Maybe you remember there where he says, the death of a single infant calls into question the goodness of God. And how much more here, a sacrificial infant that is offered for the life of David. Uh, You'll remember that there is uh, scant evidence of sacrifice of children in the Old Testament by the people of God. You'll remember that God told Abraham to provide his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But what did God do? Provided a sacrificial lamb. And it's later that wicked king Manasseh that came along and is condemned for offering his children as sacrifices to false gods. But here, the death of this child, I believe, is meant to arrest you. You're not meant to see this and think to yourself, oh wow, I guess God thinks it's okay to kill babies. No, this is a picture of a kind of transfer that is taking place. See, here, David receives a paschal lamb as a sacrificial substitute for himself. And as goes the king, so goes the people. So this is for the nation as a whole. You'll remember that 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 is the way that God brings sinners into his presence is through a, a blood sacrifice. So here, the death of this child, it's meant to arrest us. This innocent child is born to die to bear the sins of David and all of Israel because as goes the king, so goes his people. This child brings together the imagery of penal substitutionary atonement. A a child who comes as a penalty substitute who is dying in the place of David so that he might bring David back into an atoned right relationship with God. That's what this child is doing. So this child's life for King David's life. You know, this should absolutely arrest our attention. King David needed a substitute. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I just want to give you another spoiler alert about where this story goes. That's what we like to do when we're talking about the Old Testament. We don't want you to miss the point of this story, and it's Jesus all the way along. See, this child's death only foreshadowed God's greater son with whom God was well pleased both in life and in death as a a substitute and sacrifice for all of those who put their faith in Christ. It pleased God. It satisfied God's wrath and anger towards us, this sacrifice that was offered to us in his son. And if you're horrified by the death of this innocent infant, Jesus is the true innocent sufferer. A child of David who was born to die for our sins so that we might be pardoned by God. So if you want God to pardon your sins, if you want God to accept you as a child and not an enemy, then 
you are called to repent and put your faith in Christ alone as God's greater king and his greater son. That is the person, the one person to whom you must put your faith and confidence. Uh, Jesus is unique in this. You know, Muhammad did not come to die for your sins. Uh, Other cults, uh, they do not have a king who came to die for your sins. But we have a God who has made himself known who has come and taken on human flesh to die for our sins, that we might have right relationship with God. He is the only way. That's the only way to blot out your sins, as David dreamed of in Psalm 51. The only way to have them removed from him, to be blotted out, for him to be made innocent, to be cleaned, and to be forgiven. Uh, Paul explains this in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the debt of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He, he, he shamed not us but them by triumphing over them in him being Jesus. So repent and believe in the grace of God and you will be saved. You'll be a new creature. Don't leave without telling us about that. We would love to tell you more about how to become a Christian before you leave if you're not a Christian. But where does David ground this hope of forgiveness? Well, Psalm 51.1 gives us a clue, doesn't it? He doesn't ask for forgiveness because he's a good guy. He doesn't ask for forgiveness because it wasn't really that bad. He says... I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you to show mercy to me according to your steadfast covenantal love, O God. That's what he's appealing to. There's nothing in me that merits this kind of forgiveness and love and faithfulness. I have been unfaithful. But you, God, are different. You are faithful, and you are loving, and you are good, and you are able to pardon sin. A just God who also shows grace. See, David's hope before a just God was the grace of God, not his repentance. God was David's greatest fear and hope at the very same time. That's why verse 23, there David responds to the question about why did you mourn while this child was sick and then you ate and worshiped after he died. David explains this way, can I bring him back? But I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, I would love to spend a lot more time on this. We don't have time this morning. But it seems that David sees a better future than the lifeless reality of Sheol where dead people go and they just sort of sit and wait for whatever's next. I think David might actually be hinting at a resurrection here where there's a good day for him and the son that's been lost coming. We can't say that for sure, but he thinks that he's going to see his son. I think he means more than I'm just going to be with him in death someday. Of course, his greater son will actually see him one day when he welcomes into heaven the very arms of Christ. But fifth, lastly, did you notice the stories about God's grace and restoration even more than David's repentance? That's what we see in verses 24 to 31. There is a restoration that takes place after his repentance and God's forgiveness through the substitute. Notice that God rejected Saul but pardoned David. This is a beautiful story for David. He's not treated like Saul. He deserved what Saul got, but he got something better. Why? Because God made a covenant with David that he would not turn back from him. And we see this in God's 
restoration. Notice first, there are two ways we see this. God gives David and Bathsheba another son in verses 24 to 25. Did you see that? Verses 24 to 25, we see the son that is given to them, another son, and he's given two names that tell us something about the nature of God's relationship with them. He's called Solomon, a name that comes from the word for shalom or peace. That's a good word if God says you're having a child and his name's going to be peace, not like death, right? I love that his son's name, peace, not death, peace, not sword. It's a good sign, but not only that, he gives another name. Now, we don't see this name anywhere else in the Bible. Not sure if this is like his formal name or like vice versa, but he's called Jedediah, which is a beautiful name. You know, Jedediah is this name that means beloved of the Lord. He, he took the life of one so that David might live, and he replaced him with this child who was beloved by the Lord, who had the favor of God, who prepared the way for the greater beloved son. See, this child would build up a house to worship God in. He would be in the line of the greater son, Jesus, who we are told in Matthew 1 is who? The child of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's still there in the New Testament. Why? Because God wants to punctuate God's grace amidst his justice. It's not that justice has evaporated in the New Testament. God is saying, I have not forgot Uriah. I have not forgot what happened there. But look, my grace wins. My grace redeems and restores and brings hope where everything looks hopeless. But not only that, we see another beautiful picture in verses 26 to 31, and that's that David leads the charge to defeat the Ammonites. See, David gets to go back and defeat the Ammonites. God is with him again as he's winning in battle. It's the Lord that is winning through him. This is a sign of the favor of the Lord. And did you see what he gets to punctuate the end of this story? As he wins the victory over the Ammonites, he gets all kinds of treasure. Oh, and by the way, a 75-pound golden crown. So if there's ever any question in David's mind whether or not he's the king, as his men drag in the 75-pound crown and plop it right in front of him. If he's wondering if he's been restored, I think this crown might be saying something. That's the, the vision that we get. David, restored. Now that crown, he wasn't wearing on his head, obviously. That would have killed him. But it was meant to be like on a statue, showing the greatness of this king and his power, representing and reflecting not just the glory of David, but the glory of his God. And not just the God who is just, not just the God who is conquering, but the God of grace. Brothers and sisters, the cross is that so much more for us. That empty cross declaring both the justice and the mercy of God to sinners who come looking to have themselves clean from the filth of sin and forgiveness of the guilt that we have brought against God. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thing for us to think about as we get ready for communion this morning. I'm going to invite the, the musicians to go ahead and come up, as well as those who are going to be helping with communion.